Voices of Freedom podcast. The Voices of Freedom is a division of the Americans in Wartime Experience, where our mission is to honor, educate, and inspire. And we do that here at the Voices of Freedom by recording and preserving the wartime oral histories of Americans, both combat veterans and civilians alike. If you'd like to learn more about our project, you'd like to donate, or perhaps you'd like to be interviewed, please visit our website at www.americansinwartime.org. Today's interview is with Chelsea Porterfield. It was conducted at Arlington Cemetery on the 7th of November, 2021. Um, Chelsea served in the United States Army as a MP, where she did uh, two tours in Iraq, a tour in Afghanistan. She served in Israel and many other places around the world. She also served as a drill instructor, and uh, her most recent service was uh, as a sentinel at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. Um, And not just any sentinel, but Chelsea was the first woman to hold the position of Sergeant of the Guard. So that is a very uh, impressive and very prestigious uh, accomplishment. In September of 2021, she would serve with two other female soldiers, and become the all-female guards. Um, And that was the first time in the 100-year history of the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier that all um, the guards were females that were on duty. Um, Chelsea likes to say that she never wants to limit herself because of somebody else's lack of imagination. And I think when you look on her career thus far, you can say that she certainly has not limited herself She also wants to be a leader for not only men and women. And again, when you look at her accomplishments, um, she is uh, worthy of someone who, 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 um, she is worthy to be followed. She's worthy to be followed and emulated. Uh, And I think you'll see a lot of people that will look up to her um, as a role model and uh, want to do what she did and become the, the, the soldier that she became. Um, and it doesn't matter if it's a, if it's a man or a woman. Um, her accomplishments are impressive regardless. Um, so without any further ado, I bring you the interview with Chelsea Porterfield. This is Greg Pass with the Americans in Wartime Museum. Today's date is November the 7th, 2021. I have the pleasure to sit down and talk with uh, Chelsea Porterfield, and we are at Arlington National Cemetery in Arlington, Virginia. Thanks for coming in, Chelsea. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. So what, what is your full name? My full name is Chelsea Ann Porterfield. Maiden name is Mason. Okay, where, did you, um, where were you born and where did you grow up at? So I was born in Amarillo, Texas. Uh, spent majority of my life in Texas. Um, true to the heart, deep in the heart of the greatest state in America. <laughs> Good to go. So um, you're in the U.S. Army. I am still active duty, yes. Okay. And um, what year did you enlist and um, what was your motivation enlisting? I joined what is now known as the Delayed Entry Program uh, my junior year in 2001, um, and I left for basic training in June of 2002. Uh, The motivation was really to see if I could do it, honestly. It looked, um, 
I saw a recruiter in the hallway and I was probably the easiest recruit he had ever <laughs> encountered. Uh, I said, hey, I want to join the Army. And he's like, what do you want to do? I'm like, I don't know. What can I do? And he said, you can be a military policeman. And I said, oh, no one really likes police, though. He's like, yeah, but you're going to be getting tickets. And I was like, oh, well, then that changes it. So. <laughs> I'm sorry, I missed it. What month in, in 2001? G well, it was August of 2001. Okay. Whenever I joined the delayed entry, um, I recruited my Val Victorian and we both left. And then it wasn't until June 2002 that we left. Okay. All right, so let's talk about 9-11. Where were you when um, you learned about the attacks? Um, I was on uh, office administration duties, like office aid is what they called it um, that morning. Uh, they turned the TV on, so it happened, and I went and found Mary, who the person that I enlisted with, and I said, have you seen the news? And she was in computer programming, and she goes, no, so I told the teacher, she turned on the news. I went and found my mom, she was a teacher in my high school. Um, I think they cried more than, I really didn't know what to expect. I was like, wow, I wonder if this changes my future um, and I didn't that was my first concern it really wasn't a concern it was just I wonder what's gonna happen next I still have to go to basic training so I'll figure it out from there mm -hmm. um, so it kind of got real at that point yeah yeah it was yeah did you envision yourself um, participating in wartime operations after that? Absolutely two, two not. Nope. <laughs> um, I went to basic training and AIT at Fort Leonard Wood and halfway through you get your assignment. Halfway through AIT and all the drill sergeants call off everyone going to Europe with just half the class. Um, I was like, Europe? Mm, I'm pretty sure I asked for Texas. <laughs> and uh, I, dream sheet doesn't work. Yeah, no. And uh, I cried a little bit, and I was like, "Wait a minute, Germany? That's not where my family is." Um, so once I got to Germany, I didn't. I elected not to take uh, the leave in between basic training and and your first assignment. I just didn't think it was important. Um, so I got to Germany, and I remember getting there the first day with like thirteen other brand new privates. And uh, my platoon sergeant called me in the office one by one. Um, and he had two maps. He had a map of Israel and a map of Iraq. And he said, which one do you want to go to? And at that point, uh, I couldn't respond because it's not, wasn't, wasn't the expectation that I was really, I didn't really know what to expect. And uh, he kicked me out of the office. And after that, I thought about it for, I didn't obviously have a choice, right? This was just a, hey, these are the two places that this company is going to go to. So since you're brand new, which one do you want to go to? So um, so you're off to Israel? Off to Israel okay. um, within probably a couple weeks. And what, what role did, did um, your unit play in support of operations that were going on in other other parts of the world? So we left in December 2002. It was just a platoon size element. Um, as soon as we got to our location, it was just a sandy beach on the Mediterranean Sea. And 
being obviously a private straight out of basic training, I was like, wow, this is my, this is a training exercise. Completely oblivious to what reality was going on. Uh, I was doing my soldierly duties, setting up our tents, setting up the talk, going two by four, getting everything established. Um, and then within probably 48 hours, that's whenever we met up with our ADA partners and rolled in with the air defense missiles. I met my, we were on base defense, so I met my Israeli defense counterpart that I was stuck with for 12 hours a day until we left, who didn't speak any English. So that was super fun. <laughs> Before we go on any further, so um, military police. Yep. A lot of civilians don't really quite understand um, what MPs really do do. Can you explain the many different duties for your garrison and then oh, field, field MP work? Absolutely. Can you just briefly explain all the multitude of tasks that you might have as a military police officer? I, I think out of many MOSs, the Military Police Corps does a very good job from the very basic institutional level of, of developing people to be agile and have the appropriate communication skills to exercise any duty, whether it be in a garrison, it's what we call garrison, non-wartime environment, or wartime environment, understanding the application of your pillars of principles. Um, being an MP through the course of my career, our functional MOS has changed dramatically. We can do, be expert at detainee operations. We can be experts at critical site exploitation when it comes to evidence gathering in a wartime environment. Um, we can be experts at field interrogations, biometrics, data collecting, uh, and then those translate back into the civilians, or not civilian, but uh, garrison time environment. So here at Fort Myer or Fort Hood or Fort Bragg, uh, soldiers still execute those same duties, but just on just in a place where they have access to their life, mm -hmm. their families, humans, things. You're not constructed institutionalized setting like you would in a combat theater. It's the same, just applied in different austere locations. So during the um, Israel assignment, you're, um, you're pretty much tasked with physical security at that, that, that point yes. with the IDF. Yes, okay. so we were partnered with IDF and we've maintained physical security of our site uh, at one point, we rotated to a separate location. Uh, this was going back, looking at it now, and speaking to some of my uh, peers that were there. Because as a as a soldier, I, the why wasn't given to me. Right, I was a task and purpose. Uh, so asking later on, you know, hey, when we went to this location and we were handing out, you know gas masks to five-year-olds. Why were we doing that again? You know, oh, I forget. Okay, got it. You know, so it was, it was, it was a, it was a mixed kind of mission. Started out as a base defense and make sure that things don't repeat itself as it did in, in the 90s. And then once other forces and other countries finished what they needed to do, uh, we shifted locations. We hope you're enjoying this episode of the Voices of Freedom podcast. The Voices of Freedom is a division of the Americans in Wartime Experience, a 501c3 dedicated 
to honoring, educating, and inspiring. The mission of the Voices of Freedom is to record and preserve the wartime oral histories of Americans, both civilian and military. If you'd like to learn more or to donate to our project, please visit our website at www.americansinwartime.org. So where'd you go then? So then we redeployed. Um, we went back to Germany where I was stationed. Um, once we got back to Germany, I got to do some of my functional area MOS in the in the garrison type world. Germany is a little different. You don't have state law. You have country law. Um, and that was my first introduction to bar fights, uh, breaking up you know, host nation issues, DUIs, some of those things. We did that for, I did that for probably about four months. Uh, and then our company split into two and half of us went to Iraq, the other half went to Afghanistan. Uh, and I was the, the half that went to Iraq after that. Okay, so that, help me out here, that's 2003? Um, so no, that was, January 2004, we started prepping for it. Okay. And, and I'm sorry, you said you went to Afghanistan? I went to Afghanistan okay. in 2007 and eight. Okay, yes. so, so, so the first in 2004 was Iraq? Yes. Okay. Um, all right, so tell me about uh, what, what the, the conditions on the ground were and, and when you went over to Iraq and what your mission was uh, when you went there. So our mission was we relieved the original forces or first wave. Um, conditions from my lens as a soldier was I was expecting a beach with sand and a tent because that's all I had to equate it to. Mm -hmm. uh, we moved into Bob Falcon uh, is where 1-8 Cap was also their home base. So it was RMP company, another MP company, and then 1-8 Cav. Um, I'm sorry, what was your what was the company you were assigned to at this time? One twenty seventh Military Police Company. Okay. We get on ground. Everyone gets their their stuff. The conditions weren't bad. I I thought they were actually. I could have expected worse. I, I don't know that I had any expectations. We had well rationed water. Obviously, that was a thing that everybody went through. So it really wasn't anything that separated us differently. Um, once we picked up, do you know, uh, so the crow system, we had the first generation crow system in theater. The only reason why we got to have them was because crows, um, the Humvees with the mechanical Mark 19 or 50 cal, and you control it from the back seat. Uh, Gen 1, the reason why we got to keep them was because the contractor lived in our building. So we had four, one per platoon. Um, 48 hours into our arrival, figuring out what vehicles each platoon sergeant or platoon was going to have, we had to go pick up our ASVs, armored security vehicles. They kind of look like strikers, but they have four wheels. Um, those were located at Rustmaya. So this is how I knew this this deployment was going to be crazy. A deuce and a half. They don't have those anymore. But now everyone gets like an LMTB. Deuce and a half wood panel. Um, everyone's loaded up in the back like little little green army men with their M4s pointing out. And it's two of us. Two deuce and a half. It's funny. It's funny now. 
And we all get packed in the back of this, like little sardines. Lead vehicle, Humvee, deuce and a half, deuce and a half, trail vehicle. I'm in the second one. We have two people at the top. Sanders, my gunner, who is actually a um, DACP here at Fort Myer. So it's, it's good reconnecting with him. Department of Army Civilian Police. Okay. Um, exiting Irish, coming off to, to go towards Rustamaya. All I know is that everybody that was on my side, we were on our knees and then we were not on our knees. And we had like cake mud stuck to us. And I remember sitting up and I was like, what's that matter? What just happened? And he was like, you know what that was? I'm like, no, how did I not? How did I go from here to here? And I looked at, at the time, PFC Bonilla, uh, and he's like, have you ever seen a turtle try to get off his back? Mm -hmm. So that's what he was trying to do. Not funny at the time, super funny, like 10 minutes later. Turn around, um, the vehicle, it's a deuce and a half. There's no ballistic anything on it. So Bush ended up taking some shrapnel to his face. Sanders' gun completely disassembled with shrapnel. So we had to go back around. And what they did, traded out vehicles, everyone loaded back up and went right back out to go get our ASVs within like 30 minutes. Yeah. I assume this is an IED. Yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. So um, can you explain again, keeping in mind that somebody might watch this many, many years down the road, um, what is an IED? How, how is how so, role in, 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 in April 2004, in leading into March 2003, we take over Baghdad. Uh, I say we, the initial push is done. Baghdad's called Sovereign. The initial forces are still there. Um, IEDs just started uh, being, I, as I remember, it being a kind of a big thing. April 04, that first month we were there, they were a daily occurrence. Uh, and what they are is man-made roadside bombs. And they became progressively um, intricate later on down the road post-surge operations. Then they became like EFMP or EFPs, projectiles with a lot of uh, chemistry done with these science uh, elaborate bombs. But in the beginning, it was very rudimentary. There were shells that were left over from uh, the initial push, used access to whatever chemicals or whatever compounds they can get to create a bomb, place it on the side of the road, either self-detonate or remote detonate as uh, coalition forces passed by. And it was kind of like a luck of the draw at the time. They, it wasn't until later that they became very targeted uh, by patterns of routine habit. And obviously it was a significant problem throughout the entire operation. Oh, absolutely. I think, I think it wasn't until I went back in December of five and stayed till June 2007 on a separate type of job. Um, but it wasn't until when I was leaving, they, they started becoming like real, very, very, uh, hard to, um, or they were pure genius. I don't want to call them genius, but that's where mm -hmm. some of the science behind creating these things were. Yeah. So, um, so you, you were not wounded in this, this attack? But no. It was on, mm -hmm. on the, um, 
So what's going through your mind? At first you had kind of a little, hey, what the hell just happened? Did yeah. you realize what happened? Yeah, um, I... What's going through your mind at this point? I was super confused as what just happened. I wasn't, I, I don't remember being scared. I just remember looking at Bonilla and I'm like, he looks like a turtle. Uh, and then I remember looking for my team leader and I was like, start mattering. How, how did I, I used a bunch of bad words. So I don't want to say them. Please knock yourself out. <laughs> I was like, how the fuck did I just get on my back? I was literally just standing up here watching that field. And he was like, you don't know what that was. You know, why would I know what that was? Why would I, why would I know what that was? <laughs> uh, it wasn't until we got back whenever I, everyone's all settled down. I'm like, okay, I need to smoke a cigarette. But I realized what that was. And I was like, oh, hmm. I think in my mind, I had built up a, like an IED blast as to being something crazy or like smoke and brimfire. And that wasn't it. So I was like, oh, all right, let's go. Come on. I got to get my vehicle. So soldiers and civilians um, who've experienced combat or um, been under attack um, or, or some kind of a life-altering event have, have reported having time distortion, um, other types of weird phenomena that happened in your head. Did you experience like, denial, time distortion, um, auditory exclusion? Did you experience anything like that? So through this, this deployment, um, I had forgot this entire, like, year i only had uh i don't know 25 30 minutes up until three years ago and they weren't consecutive i would have people send me videos or like homemade back in the day you could have things like this um and i would be mad because i didn't remember being there right or i didn't remember some of the faces in there um and it wasn't until about three years ago, post, uh, I went to inpatient because suicide was going to be a decision. Um, and it wasn't through that recovery process that I started remembering more through cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, so there was, there was a situation where that did happen, um, but it was more It was more of a fear situation. Um, because of the situation that I was in, right? We did like, back then you didn't have armor, right? I was, I was a gunner. You didn't have all of these wonderful mesh glass baskets around you. I had a pentel and name tape deflate. That's what I had. And, uh, and, and recalling some of those situations. I remember seeing a distinct color, right? Or like how slow an RPG actually is compared to, you know, and how non, not perfectly straight it goes, you know, how it goes like sideways and up and down. And like, it's ridiculous how inaccurate that is. But. So you, you get back, um, after the ID goes off, get back, have, have a moment to, to, to think about it. Um, are your, your family back home? 
did, did you have communication with them and did you share with them uh, that something like that happened or figured best not to tell them while you were over there? No, I think later on, seven or, it wasn't until about, we, we were issued these digital cameras to document whenever we would do or respond to anything for digital forensics, right? Document, take pictures. Up, the squad leader would upload it at the talk, whatever division we fell under at the time. And sometimes, I think later on when I became super cynical or complacent, one of the other, complacency was definitely a thing. I remember sending my mom a couple of pictures. She's like, are you just trying to torture me? Yeah, I bet, I bet. No, I mean, that's just what I'm doing. Um, we had phone banks. Uh, back then they had the blackout situations, like if somebody were to pass away in theater and or your region, uh, the phones would be blacked out for 24 hours to make sure that nobody called the family members prior to the official notification. So there would be periods where it would be blacked out for a very, very long time. Gotcha. Um, so that deployment, how long did that last for? That was 12 months. So April 05, we ended up coming back to Germany. Okay. Um, Let's talk, before we get back to Germany, let's talk briefly about what your living conditions were uh, on your first deployment to Iraq. What, what were you in, like, uh, 10 GP medium buildings? Where, where, where? So our it was an old um, dorm building from, I think, an Iraqi training camp. And that's where our, our fob was, but we ended up, when you live south of Baghdad and then you commute to your patrol area, uh, you know, that's like an hour commute, but during, I remember during the elections, we slept um, in the IP station for almost three weeks. Um, I don't know, there wasn't, the building that we were at, uh, the old barracks or what have you, the building that was at wasn't bad, it was nice. I say nice, but it, I mean, definitely wasn't staying in a tent. So you, you mentioned patrols. Mm -hmm. um, what, briefly, briefly, what kind of work are you doing on these patrols? Are, are you are you monitoring main supply routes? Are you actually responding to calls for service? Um, supporting local? No. Yeah. So um, at the time, the Iraqi police force across the the country was gone, um, uh, and I think at that point they labeled it as like phase two insurgency where, you know, even the mid-level government was still kind of not trustworthy. So it wasn't in the beginning, but a few months into it, we were assigned a sector. And in that sector, those Iraqi police stations were our responsibility to build a relationship, stand up, do joint patrols, dismounted, mounted, presence patrols. Um, this was also like, I think during, before the curfew, during the curfew, I don't know. I had night, I, my patrol area or time was at nighttime. Um, so we just patrolled with them, made sure that they, we worked with them and made sure that their police station was uh, physically sound, um, equipment through standing up the vehicle fleets, um, weapons, stuff like that. Um, Training. Level of trust. I mean, how, how does that oh. happen? Having a partner that you're assigned to, that, I imagine that's a, a, a um, complicated scenario to be in. How, how does that work? Uh, well, there, 
going up until almost leaving, there had been many times where we had found ourselves in a not very, you know, a situation that was led in by our police stations. So, or false claims of requests for assistance or something like that, and it had clearly be a trap. So our trust wasn't there, but our job was still to train and be present with them. We just knew that if they were to call for help or call for assistance or do something, we either, I think one, I don't know, um, is New Year's Eve 2004 going into five. Uh, first only ever recorded vehicle-borne house explosion in Gazalia. So those same police officers uh, called in for assistance. I don't know, 2300 or midnight or something. And we're on our way from another district. Took like a five minute break, not a break, pause, tactical five minute pause on our route because we knew something was fishy. They're asking for our assistance to go into the home while they pulled outside security. And we argued back and forth, like, no, you go in the home and we'll do outside security because this is your country. You got to learn how to do this. Um, Pause for five minutes, ended up dismounted next to our vehicles to walk into the neighborhood. And as soon as the Iraqi police kicked the door in, it took out four houses. Yeah, the entire fleet that called for, for assistance. Um, so you said 2005, you went back to Germany. Yep. So April, 2005, I redeployed back to Germany. And what was your assignment at that point? Um, I was reassigned to work protection for the fifth Corps CG. Okay. And that takes, is that, is that additional like a, um, ASI, yes. PSD detail type thing? Yes, okay. yes, yes. Can you explain what, briefly what that is? Um, protective services in the military is the same thing as you would see for um, Secret Service, for, for senior government officials or people that are risk or high risk personnel's personnel. Did you enjoy that assignment? Uh, yeah, I did. Uh, I learned a lot, I grew a lot. Um, because at the time I was an E4, so as a specialist, uh, or E4 in the military going to, you know, a three-star command billet and seeing a different lens uh, prepared me for later on in life. And how long did you do this? Oh, uh, December 2005 until October 2007. So then where are you off to next? So December 2007 or 2005, we went back to Iraq, um, but as protection. So we went back with, uh, at the time, Lieutenant General Corelli, who was the multinational corps Iraq uh, commanding general. And um, can you briefly explain what day-to-day type operation is for doing a protective service detail like that in a, in a, in a war zone? Um, yes. Uh, so day to day, we'd wake up uh, around 4, 4.30, start getting our vehicles and or air assets, our helicopters if we were going somewhere. Um, because the person that we are responsible for, life, limb, 
harassment, assassination, all of the above. He was the CG for all of the ground forces in Iraq. So battle circulation or visiting forces in whatever means that they are in uh, is something that we did quite often. Um, so it depends on the mission, but five o'clock, we started our day with either uh, a patrol um, we or flying to the southern Afghanistan or southern Iraq meeting with the British forces or the northern Iraq meeting with the Kurdish forces. It doesn't matter. It just mattered who we were going. We were gone every day, all day, every day. And is this a plain clothes assignment or? or um... uh, it was you no rank, no name assignment, mm -hmm. but we were in uh, just duty uniform. It's gotcha. just said U.S. on our on our rank. Gotcha. Okay, so uh, what's after that? Um, so General Corley left after a year. I stayed for an additional six months. I was supposed to stay for two years, uh, and I picked up uh, General Casey's protection team, his incoming protection team, um, and trained those individuals. He at the time was Multinational Forces Iraq CG. And how long were you uh, working with that group? So I stayed with General Casey until he was selected to be the Chief of Staff of the Army. And then General Petraeus came in. So I stayed with General Petraeus for an additional six months. So this PSD, total PSD time, how much, how much time? It was, was 18 months in Iraq. Okay. Okay, so then what's next? Uh, so then I come back. I go back to Germany, June 2007. Um, there was kind of a situation in Iraq where I got dropped from roles from like two different theaters. So I wasn't assigned anywhere at this point. I just had to figure out where I was going to go. Um, I went back to fifth Corps, even though I wasn't assigned to Germany, I was assigned to Iraq at the time. HRC and personnel was terrible back then. Uh, John Thurman was a CG at the time and I was like, hey sir, I used to be here. He's like, oh, all right, we'll get you an assignment. Uh, the Sergeant Major for Fifth Corps at the time He's like, you need to re-enlist for something. Uh, my original plan was to re-enlist for my old MP company, the 127th. Um, they were in theater still at the time and HRC wouldn't let me do that. So I re-enlisted for the International Military Police Platoon that was in North, in NATO. That was there in Germany, and I went to NATO that same October, October two thousand seven. Um, so I was assigned to NATO two thousand October two thousand seven until June two thousand and nine. And then where you off to? And that's when I went to Afghanistan while I was assigned to NATO. Okay. So t tell me about when you got to Afghanistan and. Um, what your initial um, observations were in the landscape and just oh, the man. situation of Afghanistan versus what you had experienced in Iraq, two different animals. Um, so I, I think I expected Afghanistan to be uh, a little more uh, advanced with some of the, I don't know, cultural, I, have ne I didn't really read up on Afghanistan. I wasn't, didn't ever expect to go to Afghanistan. I totally expect to have most of my time in Iraq. I'm sure, when did you get there? What, what month and year? Uh, I got there, I spent 
October, it was December 2008 to April 2009 because I went to drill sergeant school in June 2009. Yep. Okay. I'm sorry for interrupting. So, so you get that Afghanistan yep. and your observations. Um, so. Because we were, uh, because I was in an international setting, um, my my squad was a bunch of different nations. So we had, I had different rules. We couldn't be in certain places. Um, but at the time, I remember seeing the cultural changes. We were in Kandahar, uh, even though it's aesthetically different than Baghdad, Iraq. I just still kind of expected maybe the same cultural cultural similarities but it's not as westernized. And I, I, not that I wasn't prepared for that, but same with some of, um, I didn't see a lot of drugs in Iraq, uh, but in Afghanistan, you know, seeing someone wearing bed sheets in two feet of snow, but explaining how to make a black tar heroin cookie was like mind blowing because that's science, <laughs> but it's cold. Why don't you wear socks? You know, um, it was just, completely opposite of what Iraq was. But I had spent like majority of my youth in Iraq. What are your day-to-day duties? Uh, my day-to-day, we ran the International Military Police Station. So for the other 22 sub-nations that were on Kandahar, they ultimately reported, um, yeah, I don't know, whatever it is that they, other nations did to us, uh, and we were the overarching police station, I guess you could say Fort Kandahar. The rest of them just reported up. And what, what were your living conditions at this point? Uh, we lived in a tent, a GP large uh, with with a, a cot. It wasn't bad. Um, good communication uh, back and forth from home? Yeah, we actually, at this point we had cell phones. Because I didn't have cell phones before that. So at this point, we had like the Roshan phones mm-hmm. or whatever. Okay, so where are you off to next? Uh, I am off to drill sergeant school. Yeah. Probably like 90 days after that. And, and obviously, that's back in the United States. Mm-hmm. Okay. And um, after school, you go to? Fort Leonard Wood. Okay. And as, as a drill sergeant. Mm-hmm. And how long were you? Um, as a drill sergeant? Two and a half years. Did you enjoy it? Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's an investment, so you only get what you put in. You put in the bare minimum, then that's what you're sending to the force. Yeah. So. Um, forgive me. Um, Mary, if you don't mind, married kids. So I met my husband there uh, as a drill sergeant, and we didn't have children until five years ago. He just turned five, so five years ago. It was our second trip to Fort Leonard Wood. And you said, I'm sorry, you said you, he's a soldier as well? He just retired two years ago, so now he's a stay-at-home dad, doing nothing. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so you're done with your drill sergeant um, assignment, and what, what's your next assignment after that? I go to Korea, Area 1, uh, Camp Casey. What kind, of, what kind of work are you doing there? Uh, I'm a platoon sergeant for the largest MP company in the Army. I've had 64 oh, really? people okay. in my platoon, half Katusa, half U.S. soldier. I've never been there before. I, I just said, 
a DMV, uh, DMZ type assignment so or do can law enforcement, physical security? What do you, what do you uh, we rotated. Every six weeks, we were either working the road or we were in the field or we were participating in an exercise or we were at another sub-installation providing law enforcement. And what was the MP company name? Uh, 55th MP company. And how long were you doing that for? It's a one year. I did a one year short tour. And were you able to take your family on that? Mm -mm, no. He was still a drill siren. So our toss up was I do another year or I go somewhere else. And I was not going to do another year. So. <laughs> so it was after Korea? Uh, I meet him in Hawaii. That's whenever we met back in Hawaii. I'm sure that was a terrible assignment. Uh, I worked more there than <laughs> really? I did on the trail. Yeah. Really? Yeah. And was that with the uh, 25th? No, uh, 8th and P Brigade. I, the first half, I managed um, the military police investigations offices for Fort Schofield and Shafter. Um, and then the second half, I managed a military police company operations section, which is just ops. Um, after Hawaii? After Hawaii, then we went back to Leonardwood. Um, I was a career course instructor for the military police captain's career course and military police basic officer leader course. And then that's whenever we had our son. Okay. Uh, and then where are you off to after that? Then we're here uh, in the 3rd Infantry Regiment. Okay, so we're almost at present time. So again, keep in mind a lot of people watching this, most people watching this probably don't are not prior military. Right. Um, people know what they know from TV about this this beautiful uh, piece of property run. Can you tell um, briefly where we are right now and the importance of this in our nation's history and in your role? Um, what do you do here? And what there? Okay, so Fort Myer, located right next to Arlington National Cemetery, which is quite arguably the most storied national cemetery that there is. Uh, it is not only a federal installation, but it's a Department of Defense. Everyone from all services are here. There's civilians that are buried here from the institution of Arlington National Cemetery. Um, there's unknowns buried here, other than our three that we honor every day. The 3rd Infantry Regiment is responsible uh, for all honors rendered in Arlington National Cemetery through military honors, military full honors funerals, standard honors, full honor fuel, uh, dependents, um, service members, retirees. Um, but the old guard's also responsible for everything outside of Arlington National Cemetery that involves ceremonial excellence. So anytime that we have a state arrival or anything, a figurehead from another country that is invited to the nation's capital by our senior government officials, we are there to present a ceremonial presence and an expectation of what our United States Army looks like. So you're the face of the U.S. Army? We are the face of the United States Army. How, how did you get um, involved with with the old guard and was it something you, you sought after or? So I did see I had heard of it before, just the regiment. I didn't know really what my MOS could do in it or what other MOSs could do in it. And this was years ago. Um, 
I applied probably in 2011 during my time in Korea, and I was accepted. Uh, for my MOS, 31 Bravo, it's not, since it's not an infantry MOS, there's a, a longer queue uh, for your time to come up. So there's so few positions when you originally get here. So when I was accepted, I told my husband, I was like, hey, I got accepted. And he was like, oh, I don't want to go to DC. It's too busy there. I was like, okay. So I declined the assignment and then I ended up going to Hawaii. But it always struck me, um, I wanted to, I wanted to see if I was good enough to be in the organization. All you do when you read about the 3rd United States Infantry Regiment, the Old Guard, everyone thinks about the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier um, or any other supporting, like the United States drill team. Like, well, maybe I want to know if I'm good enough. I think I could do it. I want to know if they think I could do it. Um, so when I applied again after having my son, and went to the MP company that's assigned here and took over as a platoon. I was, that was my first test. I was like, okay, I can do this. I can do this. What are your day-to-day -day, uh, duties? Um, at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, for my previous job as a Sergeant of the Guard, my day-to-day -day duties were standards and discipline of the platoon and make sure that um, daily operations are met and expected everything is running smoothly. The relief commander who's on duty that day uh, is completely responsible for the mission, but also for me to be there and make sure the standards are, are kept and maintained. And how many guys, um, and how many soldiers are doing guarding the, the tomb? So it's a platoon size element. Um, they work on shift work in groups of three squads or three reliefs. So it really depends on how many people are available that day. They work on a 26 hour shift, 26 on, 22 off for five days. Then they have a three day break and they come back in for day nine training. Now if they're going, if they're in testing, the three day break really isn't a break. They're doing, they're preparing for testing and stuff like that, but. So, um, I'm sorry, you're, you're a Sergeant First Class? Mm -hmm. So are, um, you obviously are heavily involved in leadership management of the unit, or you actually do ceremonial stuff yourself as well? Right, so everyone, whenever they do, when anyone comes to the platoon, when they volunteer for the Army, volunteer for the regiment, and then volunteer to try testing at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, it doesn't matter what your rank is, you're gonna test the same way as a private would. Um, you just get to have responsibility and accountability. Mm -hmm. That's just the difference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so yes, uh, my first initial test was as a walker, and then I test it as a changer. And then my responsibility is uh, foreign heads of state and the president of the United States for full honors reads. So what's it like to be a soldier who has the honor of, of actually doing what almost every American has seen either in person or in video seeing this? I mean, that, what's that like when you're walking that sand? Can it, do you realize the significance of that? I imagine you do. Um. So, and that's a weird question, but for somebody who hasn't done it, it really is a, it's a tremendous responsibility. I mean, to think of that, I'm just curious trying to get in the mind of somebody who's done that before. It is. So this is my one, it's very, it's nerve wracking because you don't want to disrespect or embarrass the organization 
in any way. And to know that perfection is what we strive for, there could be an off chance that it's not gonna be perfect, right? So expectation management is something that I get nervous, even all the way up until my last change. Like I still, I was trying to get all the, all of the butterflies out. This was gonna be my last one. Um, I'm just grateful that I was able to work with those soldiers. Yeah. That's all, those are my favorite, but. So 30 years ago, there was zero chance somebody like you would be assigned to a unit like this, correct? So, so, yeah. So there's also some significance there on the fact that you got somebody such as yourself, a female, who, who is is running reps just like male soldiers have done historically for, for many years. Um, that must be a challenge in and of itself, break, breaking ground like that, right? Um, so I think if you ask the people that I work with, I think they had a harder challenge getting me out of my own head than than me actually training. Um, he was one of my trainers. So I don't know that I looked at it being groundbreaking or that it was something that, that was grand. I don't think I, I don't, I don't know that I ever looked at it that way. I think I applied external, I applied pressure to myself to make sure that I can meet some sort of, you know, to, just so I, I can meet the expectations. Um, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to make sure I met whatever expectations uh, for these soldiers, the platoon, the future, the legacy that, that could possibly be left or in the history, the ones that came before me. Um. So we talked briefly before the camera was rolling about um, what we're doing, and you know, just for the record, obviously we're videotaping this. You'll receive a, a free copy of the video, and you're also going to receive some information on how you can send this information to the Library of Cong Congress across the river for the Veterans History Project. So theoretically, 150 years from now, 300 years from now, your great 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 grandkids might stumble upon the video. What do you want them to know about your your service to your country? The service to the country, I think, um, but I don't know. I think if it's one thing that I would consistently remember or try to make sure that the previous generations keep is it isn't about you. It will never be about you. It's about the 10 years down the road, the 15 years down the road. So make sure your actions shape that. It's not about you. Um, you mentioned that, that you had an encounter with a recruiter when you were <laughs> a young kid. If you had a, another young kid about your age at the time came up to you and said, hey, you know, this is really cool what you're doing. I'm, I'm 17 and I want to be a soldier just like you. What kind of advice would you give them on how to succeed in the United States Army like you have? Don't have any expectations and try everything once. Job assignments, if it's something that you want to do, do it. 
I, I don't, I, I've been lucky. I haven't had to do something twice in my career. I've done new things every time, and it was all something I thought was going to be neat, or I'm going to learn something on this, or do something new on this, and I didn't have any expectations of it. I didn't know if it was going to be bad. I didn't know if it was going to be good. I just knew that I'm going to try it. So I understand you're a short timer. Yes. You got a timer coming up, and when is that going to be? Uh, officially 1 July 2022. Okay. So um, well-deserved retirement. Congratulations on coming up. Um, what are your plans? I'm not going to do anything <laughs> for 12 months. <laughs> Absolutely yeah. nothing. Uh, my son is five. I want to have another another we I we want to have another baby my husband's 40 um, I'd like not to be in the ancient geriatric pregnancy group I'm 37 but I still want a year off so maybe maybe 39 we'll have another another kid because five years old and being our age is kind of exhausting <laughs> so he needs he needs a playmate of some sort. Well, I, I can't thank you enough for coming in. You have a fascinating story, all, all your accomplishments over, how many years total will it be? It'll be 20, exactly. Okay, yeah, I mean, that's, that you did a lot in 20 years. Um, thank you for your service. Thanks for spending some time in, in the uh, RV with us and telling us your fascinating story. Good job, Sean. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this interview. If you'd like to find out more about the Voices of Freedom Project and the Americans in Wartime Experience, or if you'd like to donate, please visit our website at www.americansinwartime.org. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast.